It is hot out there, and more so than normal July weather. It's estimated that more than 100 million Americans are under heat watches, warnings and advisories spanning the West Coast and South. And it's not just the land that's hot. It's the ocean, too. Here with me to talk about this hot story and other science news of the week is Rachel Feltman, editor-at-large at Popular Science and host of the podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. Rachel is based in Jersey City, New Jersey. Welcome back to Science Friday. Thanks for having me, Ira. Nice to have you. Okay, I can tell it's hot by just walking outside my house. <laughs> but that's just my little corner of the world, right? How hot has it, just how hot has it been? Yeah, too hot uh, is the answer. Uh, last week, we broke several world temperature records in a row. Uh, the news is just out that June was officially the hottest June ever on record. So things are superlatively hot. Uh, and I would rather they were not, but it that is the case. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm looking at the water temperatures off the coast of Florida, and they're insane. Yeah, so basically all around Florida, the, the water is um, abnormally hot, but especially uh, around the Keys near Everglades National Park, the temperatures hit 96.8 degrees Fahrenheit on Monday, which is 10 degrees Fahrenheit higher than the average summer peak. And it's just shy of the global ocean temperature record, which was set in Kuwait in 2020. And these are like sustained temperatures. Of course, El Nino involves warmer oceans, and we knew that that climate pattern was coming up. Uh, we knew to expect this. Scientists have been saying for years, climate change is happening. And the next time we have one of these sort of natural peaks in heat, it's going to be really bad. Uh, and sure enough, things are, yeah. are pretty dire. Yeah, it looks like Florida is conducting its own boiling frog experiment. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yikes. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I joke about that, but it's actually very bad for the sea life there, isn't it? Yeah. So one thing that scientists are really certain of is, is that this uh, heat in the water is going to cause a lot of coral bleaching. And, of course, um, that's dangerous not just for the coral uh, themselves as living organisms, but uh, the many, many organisms that live on or connected to that uh, reef ecosystem. And reefs, of course, also help protect the land during storms like hurricanes. So it's bad news all around. Yeah, speaking of storms, we're barely into the summer and who knows what the hurricane season is going to be like considering all this hot water around there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, El Nino tends to favor stronger hurricane activity in the central and eastern Pacific, uh, but actually lower hurricane activity in the Atlantic. But warm water does fuel hurricanes. So now we're in this interesting position of being like, is the water so warm that we won't see that usual downturn in activity that we expect with El Nino? Um, so that's something that we'll just have to, to wait and see as the season uh, unfolds. Yeah, this this might be what the new abnormal looks like with climate change. Our next story is also about climate change and the oceans, but about oceans changing colors. Yeah. So based on uh, satellite observations over the last 20 years, uh, more than 56 percent of the world's oceans have changed color to an extent that can't be explained by natural variability. So climate change is the likely culprit. Well, what kind of colors are we talking about here? Rainbow colors? 
<laughs> Fortunately, no. I, I, a rainbow ocean sounds nice in theory, but would probably be pretty pretty freaky. Um, the greening of the oceans is what we're mostly talking about. Um, you know, the color of the ocean comes from what's what's hanging out in its upper layers. So when you see a really deep blue sea, there's actually very little life in there. And green means there's phytoplankton, the stuff eating the phytoplankton. And so, yeah, that's normal. It's good for there to be food for the fish, but there's a balance. So it's not necessarily good that we're seeing these big changes in the ocean ecosystem. And and we don't know whether it could be permanent yet, do we? No, this is all very preliminary. Basically, it's just like we can confirm the shift is happening and that we can't explain it with uh, something other than climate change. All right. While we're on the subject of algae, let's talk about something that's all t- totally different. And this one could seriously <laughs> cut down greenhouse gas emissions from cow poop, algae and cow poop. You've got to con- make that connection. Connect those dots for me. <laughs> yeah. So there have been a few studies over the years about um, adding this species of red algae to uh, cattle feed, uh, because basically, um, as many people know, cows produce a lot of methane in their burps. And this is a huge contributor to greenhouse gases um, in the dairy and the beef industry. And it's all due to the like magical, wonderful stuff that happens in their four-chambered stomachs. And when you add certain things to that mix, it can kind of change the the chemical equation and make less methane come out. So there's been some research on feeding cows some stuff like this algae uh, to make them burp less methane. But there are some concerns with that. It's like, is it really safe to feed them a bunch of algae? All of that is still very much in progress. And these researchers decided, you know, what if we address this other slightly smaller source of methane emissions, which is just the stored manure, like all that cow poop has to go somewhere. Right. And where, where it sits in storage, it, re- it releases methane. And they found that when they just like, basically just like, pour the algae on the poop. And um, it did cut down on the methane emissions uh, by, I want to say, about 44%. Wow. We've talked on this show before, as you say, about feeding cows the algae. But this is this addresses the issues on the rear end side of things. <laughs> yeah. The back end, Unfortunately, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, that that poop problem only accounts for about 12% of the total methane emissions from the cattle industry. So uh, it's a good problem to solve, but uh, unfortunately it, it will not give us carbon neutral beef. So Yeah, okay, let's move from the deep in, in the ground on Earth here to <laughs> Mars. There's more evidence for water on the red planet? Yeah, uh, basically Perseverance uh, has been poking around uh, this area called the Jezero Crater. It was there a while back. And uh, new research on uh, some of the samples it analyzed while it was there in those rock formations shows a bunch of signs of organic molecules. And organic molecules are basically the building blocks of life. They don't necessarily, and almost certainly in this case, don't mean that life was present, but it's the kind of like chemical processes that happen in rock and water that create an environment where life can evolve like it did early on on Earth. So always exciting to see signs that Mars was once perhaps wet and full of the same sort of just like chemical shenanigans as happened a long time ago on Earth. Let's move on and talk about two important FDA approvals that are making the news this week. The first the first one we're talking about is the first over-the-counter birth control pill. Big deal this is. 
Yeah, really big deal. You know, a bunch of uh, companies and advocacy groups have been working toward this for a long time. And this is the first uh, oral contraceptive pill that is going to be available over the counter, um, hopefully sometime in 2024. But uh, it's it's a big deal that the FDA has cleared this. And hopefully it's just uh, the first of many. Mm-hmm. Is this different from the birth control pills that have been available with a prescription? Uh, so what's exciting is that it, it really isn't. It is, you know, of course, just one type of pill. It's a progestin-only pill, and there are many other types of oral hormonal contraceptive. But what's cool is that this is basically just that a company has demonstrated and the FDA has verified that, like, this pill is safe and effective enough for right. it to be sold over the counter. So hopefully some other types will be approved, too. And the other FDA approval this week is for a colonoscopy prep that tastes like a sports drink. Boy, people will be happy to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, so they say. I certainly hope it lives up to the hype. But uh, yeah, Souflave is um, a new oral prep solution that is supposedly both low volume and very effective and tastes like uh, a lemon-lime sports drink. And that's a really big deal because there is very low compliance. Something like 72% of people are up to date on their colonoscopy screenings, and uh, especially with the rise of uh, colorectal cancer in especially young people, it's just really important to get people to those screenings. And studies show consistently that one of the biggest hurdles is that people hate the solution prep (laughs) because it's so gross. So I'm really glad to see that, uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is working on tackling that problem because it might sound kind of superficial, but it could really make a difference in getting people screened. Yeah, let's let's uh, finish off with a story about the ingenuity of birds. We've been hearing about, right, how ingenious they make and use tools. And now some birds have managed to keep other birds away from their nests by stealing (laughs) anti-bird, those little pointy things from buildings. (laughs) I really love this story because the birds have just really showed us up. Yeah, researchers in uh, Rotterdam in the Netherlands uh, found that uh, some crows were making their nests using like those long spikes that get attached to buildings to keep birds away. Um, And the crows were using them as kind of like structural material. Um, But then once they started looking, they found that magpies, uh, which build these really like large dome nests, they were actually using them for their intended purposes. They use the spikes on the outside of these giant domes to keep other birds from landing on their nests. They look awesome. I definitely recommend that people uh, look up the (laughs) photos. And it just goes to show you that like, the birds have it all figured out. And, you know, we're just along for the ride. Well, yeah, we are. And it's actually a good example, I think, of how birds are adapting to urban environments like we do when we move into town. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, recently there was another study that was like about how all of these bird species are building nests with potentially dangerous trash like cigarette butts and plastic bags. And that obviously is a huge bummer and a reminder to people to, you know, try to produce less waste and definitely control your litter. But I love that there is this more optimistic, uh, uplifting story (laughs) of birds uh, using human junk to make their lives better. 
Always another wonderful thing to talk over a beer tonight on Friday nights. Thank you, Rachel. (laughs) Always great to have you. Thank you, Ira. Rachel Feldman, editor-at-large for Popular Science and host of the podcast, The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week. Rachel's based in Jersey City, New Jersey.